Welcome everyone to Neurology Exam Prep from Yale Neurology. My name is Safa Abdel-Hakim. I have with me Dr. Reshma Nerola, who is a familiar voice to you all. She is one of our stroke attendings. Today we'll be going through clinical cases um, in stroke. Something really great about stroke neurology is that you see patients in the emergency room, you see them in patient service as you work them up, and then you see them in clinic as you follow the risk factors. So today, some of the cases will include all these factors. And the hope is to really get you thinking about the multiple layers that come with every stroke presentation. How are you, Dr. Nerola? I'm good. So I'll just go ahead and tell you about the first case. So this is a 65-year-old male with a past medical history of hypothyroidism who came into the emergency room as a stroke code with right-sided weakness, mild aphasia that came on suddenly as he was watching TV. His last known normal was five hours ago. He just thought, you know, no big deal. All the symptoms will get better. It was too late. And then um, when, when the symptoms didn't resolve, he presented. His NIHSS initially was six uh, for mild aphasia, right arm and leg drift with mild dysarthria. What do you think um, about where the stroke could localize to and what would be the first sort of imaging modality that you would want to get when the patient arrives in the emergency room? Sure. So he has mild aphasia. So I'm already thinking this is a cortical stroke, um, mostly localizing to the left hemisphere. I should have included the handedness. He was actually right-handed, but most people are going to be left-sided, left brain dominant anyways. Um, And then at that point, really, um, I want to make sure there's not no large vessel occlusion. So a CT head and a CTA would be the best um, imaging modalities in the immersion setting. Mm-hmm. So CT head would be the standard of care, like you said, to evaluate for any sort of intracranial hemorrhage or a large territory stroke. Um, we know that this patient is outside the time window for TPA, which would be four and a half hours in the sort of extended window, um, three hours in most patients. Um, and then as he is five hours from his symptom onset, he, that would exclude him um, from intravenous thrombolysis. But like you said, you would want to make sure that the patient doesn't have a proximal large vessel occlusion. And um, I would be worried about, like you said, the anterior circulation. Is there a reason um, that you would be looking for a large vessel occlusion, would the patient qualify for any other sort of stroke, acute stroke interventions? Um, So at this point, past the TPA window, we're really hoping to take him to thrombectomy if he's a candidate. Uh, And the reason why I didn't think of CT perfusion immediately is, you know, we don't really need it for this particular case to take him to thrombectomy. So if the CT had a certain aspect score that was higher than six, and the CTA shows a large vessel occlusion, then he should just be taken immediately to thrombectomy. So the the trials that you're referring to were the kind of groundbreaking trials for endovascular therapy for acute ischemic stroke within six hours, which were all kind of released in 2015, which stated that mechanical thrombectomy for proximal large vessel occlusions in the anterior circulation was both safe and effective for strokes and also reduced disability in those patients in that population and was superior to 
just intravenous TPA alone. And that was kind of um, a game changer for the stroke world when everything started to change and that people that had these very disabling strokes with large vessel occlusions who may or may not have been a candidate for IV thrombolysis were now candidates for this kind of magical intervention that would help go on to help a lot of people. Um, you referred to something called the ASPECT score. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that is? Absolutely. So the ASPECT score essentially divides up the ischemic territory. Well, it divides up the brain into territories and based on the ischemic burden, it calculates an aspect score. And as we have more ischemic injury, we subtract from the 10. Um, so for example, someone with an aspect score of four really has a much larger ischemic burden than someone who has an aspect score of nine or, or eight. You're right, exactly. So the aspect score um, tells us the severity of MCA strokes. And it basically divides the MCA territory into different regions. The ASPECS itself stands for Alberta Stroke Program Early CT Score. And like you said, with areas of infarction on the CT head, you basically subtract points from that scoring system. So a score of 10 would be somebody with a normal head CT and you reduce the score for any signs of infarction. So the lower the score, the more severe the stroke is. And in all of these sort of early trials for endovascular therapy or mechanical thrombectomy, they included patients um, who would go on to be eligible for those therapies with a score of greater than or equal to six. People were with severe strokes already appearing on um, a head CT without contrast would not be candidates for endovascular therapy. And then something else, um, Dr. Nerola, as I'm thinking about this case, it's so important for us to identify early signs of ischemic changes on CT head. You know, this patient's last known normal is, is six hours ago, so it doesn't, sorry, five hours ago, so it doesn't necessarily apply to this patient. But what are some of these findings of early ischemic findings? Um, so on a head CT, you're measuring the density of the tissue. So we refer to ischemia as an area that would be hypodense. And so what you're looking for is blurring of the gray-white junction, early signs of cytotoxic edema. And those would be, you know, the main things, any change in the density of the tissue. So a hyperdense vessel sign would be the opposite. So the density would increase when you have a thrombus in a vessel. Mm -hmm. so that's what you're talking about with the dense MCA sign. Exactly. Uh, these, are, these are all great signs to be uh, aware of as we're in the CT scanner with acute stroke codes. So this patient did have a left temporal hypodensity, um, no intracerebral hemorrhage. Um, CTA showed a left M1 occlusion with distal perfusion likely from collateral flow. He went to thrombectomy with a TK2B revascularization, which I always, you know, initially I was like, Tiki what? Um, so what, what does the Tiki, what does Tiki mean? That's a good question. I don't know what it says. The thrombolysis in cerebral infarction score. 
Um, it's basically a scoring system to determine the level of reperfusion that you get within a blood vessel after endovascular therapy. And so zero basically means that there's no perfusion through the vessel. It's completely blocked. One is when you get penetration, but no distal branch filling. Um, and then two is divided into 2A and 2B. Um, so the simple way to think about it would be 2A would be perfusion with incomplete distal branch filling of less than 50%. 2B would be um, incomplete filling, but with more than 50% of distal branch filling. And three would be full reperfusion of all the distal branch vessels. Um, yeah, this is a very helpful way to standardize the outcome of the revascularization attempts. So patient got admitted, um, and then the additional workup that we would think about, the standard workup, is a hemoglobin A1C, a lipid panel, including an LDL, TSH, uh, echo with bubble, as well as tele, continuous tele monitoring. This is the kind of tier tier one across the board, you know, in addition to an MRI if able, uh, which he's done. Um, the workup revealed AFib on tele actually, and based on further workup, it was it was determined that it was likely from a hyperactive um, from overtaking his thyroid medication. So, what do you think the etiology of the stroke is in this? patient situation. So this is a cardioembolic, uh, likely cardioembolic source. Um, patient has AFib. You know, in this particular case, we also want to make sure that he wouldn't have a thrombus um, because that would impact how we perceive the case. Cardiac thrombus, exactly, sorry. Um, and he did not. And he did not have any valvular disease either. Why is that important? So that's important because historically people were put on Coumadin and then recent trials, uh, one of them is the uh, randomized evaluation of long-term anticoagulation, anticoagulant therapy. They've looked into what we call the DOAX. Um, this particular one looked into uh, Debigetran and realized that it's pretty effective to reduce the incidence of strokes in people with non-valvular atrial fibrillation, meaning they have atrial fibrillation without a valvular cause. There's no valve damage that's causing a strain on the heart to cause the AFib. Additionally, it showed, it showed that it decreased the risk of bleeding. So the bigger trend would be a great option. Equally, not equally, I'm not sure, but also apixaban and rivaroxaban are other options. So for um, atrial fibrillation for secondary stroke prevention, you're right that long-term systemic anticoagulation would be the treatment to prevent future strokes. In the past, we've used warfarin or Coumadin for systemic anticoagulation, but now there are direct oral anticoagulants or DOACs, which have been approved for, the treat for secondary stroke prevention in the setting of non-valvular atrial fibrillation. Um, so dabigatran or Pradaxa is a direct thrombin inhibitor, which is non-inferior to Coumadin and also decreases the risk of GI bleeding as compared to warfarin. Um, the other two that we commonly use would be rivaroxaban or Xarelto and apixaban or Eliquis. Both of those are factor 10A inhibitors. And so the ones that we typically use um, because it has the lowest risk of intracranial bleeding would be apixaban or Eliquis. 
both apixaban and dibigatran are taken twice a day and xarelto or rivaroxaban is taken once daily and so sometimes there's a preference based on um, compliance of the patient um, which we choose but all have been shown to be non-inferior to to warfarin for that indication the second i think there's a good time to do a second case this is a 35 year old female mm -hmm. a recent pe on apixaban she comes in with a left more than right weakness in the setting of a few days of severe headache and blurry vision. Her symptoms of weakness developed over hours and worsened on the day of presentation within about four hours of presenting. So what are the sorts of things you would be concerned about as possible etiologies for, for her when she comes to the emergency room? With a severe headache um, and blurry vision, I'm already really worried about um, the venous um, circulation, venous infarct, especially in a patient who had the previous PE, which um, does not have a clear etiology. So these are things that are already um, concerning me. And then in somebody that has um, new focal neurological deficits, headache, and is on a blood thinner, and also be worried about intracranial hemorrhage as, as a possible etiology. And um, so what would be the first kind of imaging modality that you would want in her? So definitely a CT head for the same exact reason and CTA and a CTV. Great. I mean, I think uh, those are all great. Sometimes in, in patients that get a CT angiogram, which is a way to look at the blood vessels of the head and neck, you can, you can see the venous system pretty well, but getting a dedicated venous study is also a, a good idea in a young patient that has new focal neurological deficits um, and headache but also make sure to do a good fundoscopic exam because headache, um, blurry vision can also be signs of increased intracranial pressure. Absolutely, which she did. So she had elevated optic discs bilaterally. So her CT head showed a right temporal stroke. Her CTV uh, showed bilateral, nearly symmetric, parasagittal, cortical and basal ganglia, venous infarctions, um, with thrombosis in the superior sagittal sinus and deep cerebral veins. That sounds like a very complicated patient. Um, so what would be the first thing that you could do in this patient to kind of alleviate some of her symptoms? So in the acute management for this patient, I mean, she, she, given that she has no bleed, uh, she really needs a heparin drip like stat. What could you consider doing before um, starting anticoagulation? in somebody that has signs of increased intracranial pressure? Um, so there are a lot of uh, quick maneuvers we can do. Uh, so elevating the head of the bed, um, uh, hyperventilating, tapping, all would decrease the compartmental pressure um, within the scalp and alleviate intracranial uh, uh, hypertension. So what you're worried about in somebody that has a venous sinus thrombosis and um, blurry vision is that they could go on to develop vision loss acutely. And so while you are trying to prevent clot propagation with something like anticoagulation, in order to alleviate some of that pressure, before you start anticoagulation, you can do a therapeutic lumbar puncture to relieve some of the pressure um, and also start the patient on something like Diamox to, to decrease the amount of CSF production. Um, all of that will help 
to alleviate the pressure and hopefully prevent some of the um, visual symptoms that can develop with increased intracranial pressure. Um, some of these patients even go on to require a BP shunt placement due to the potential for, for vision loss. Um, and it's really important to do these things before you start anticoagulation because once you start it, obviously doing uh, lumbar puncture can become much more complicated. What do you think about starting anticoagulation in somebody that already has signs of an infarction on imaging? So this is a complicated question because we have to weigh in the size of the infarcts. Um, with the risk of the clot propagating. So I would say, you know, in her case, we're just given the extent of her thrombus uh, that she would need um, anticoagulation and heparin drip would be ideal because with any change in exam, the heparin drip could be shut off and could be potentially reversed if, if she does go on to develop a massive bleed, for example. Right, exactly. So to prevent clot propagation, you would need to start her on anticoagulation, um, even in people that have large ischemic strokes or even evidence of intracranial bleeding, you still move on with the treatment of anticoagulation because that's the only thing that will help kind of treat what's going on. Um, I would obtain an MRI of the brain just to see the full extent of the, the burden of the strokes um, and if there's any sort of venous congestion that can't be seen on um, just a normal head CT, and then just be very cautious with the with the heparin infusion, like you stated. What do you yeah. think could cause something like this? So on further uh, history taken for this patient, she actually had two late trimester miscarriages. They were worried about hypercoagulability at the time, especially uh, with an unprovoked PE that she um, very recently developed. However, the workup has not been done yet. So antiphospholipid syndrome is something that, I'm, um, that is definitely high on my differential for this uh, patient. What is antiphospholipid syndrome? Um, so it's, uh, it's a, essentially an, almost like an autoimmune disease um, with the antibodies uh, contributing to a hypercoagulable state. And those particular antibodies that we look for are um, anti-cardiolipin antibody, anti-beta-glycoprotein, as well as lupus anticoagulant. Yeah, it's basically um, antiphospholipid syndrome is an autoimmune disorder. Some of the signs or symptoms of it could be blood clots, like you said, miscarriages, chronic headaches, um, seizures, and basically body's immune system attack, makes antibodies that attack the phospholipids and that predispose you to both venous and arterial blood clots. And so exactly right that this could predispose this patient to uh, cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, pulmonary embolism, and, and the treatment is um, morphine. Uh, which is really what, what we want, what we change this patient's anticoagulation outpatient to become. You know, she followed with hematology. Her antibodies actually came back suggestive of antiphospholipid syndrome, and she was switched to, to Coumadin. Most of the time, we actually put people um, that have evidence of extensive venous sinus thrombosis on both anticoagulation with warfarin and antiplatelet therapy with aspirin in the setting of antiphospholipid syndrome. Exactly. She, she had a close follow-up with hematology, and um, given the stroke burden, we had to kind of um, arrange 
for very close follow-up. Three things I would worry about in terms of neurological symptoms would be intracranial hemorrhage, ischemic stroke. Patients can present with focal neurological deficits, vision loss, blurry vision, um, and seizures, and headache would be one of the more common things that people present with. And the hemorrhage is really with the backup flow into the parenchyma. Um, it, it causes the abnormal blood flow into the venous system and, and leaks out of the brain, essentially, uh, out, essentially. That's how I think about it. Yeah, I would think about both ischemic stroke and intracranial hemorrhage um, in the setting of venous sinus thrombosis as a result of increased pressure. Case three is a 39-year-old smoker, a male, who's a construction worker, who presents with headache and vertigo with last known normal five hours ago. Okay. What, what would you be worried about and what sort of imaging would you want to get when this patient comes to the ED? So it's a young patient and a construction worker, so that could point you in a certain direction. Sure. So a construction worker, um, you know, could, I, I could kind of assume he does heavy lifting, uh, which could put stress on his neck and could potentially cause shearing of the vertebral artery, um, which could totally explain his headache and would explain his vertigo if he, if he winds up developing a serious circulation stroke. Um, so a CT head and a CTA um, definitely needs to be done. But did you want to know about his exam? Sure. So I would just say in any young patient that has focal neurological deficits, you always want to think about dissection, um, just because that is one of the more common causes of stroke in younger patients. Um, and then again, with headache and focal neurological deficits, always want to keep in mind intracranial hemorrhage or some sort of trauma that could have predisposed the patient to that. That's exactly what we did with this case. So his exam actually showed a Horner. His exam was very interesting and it kind of ties up to our posterior circulation stroke podcast. Um, he had a Horner's on his left side, on the left side of his face, vertigo, um, left arm ataxia, um, as well as sensory changes to the left side of his face and the right side of his body. So that uh, makes me think of a left lateral medulla. Um, so I'm worried about the left vertebral artery. And that's actually what the CTA confirmed. So now what would, what would you do in this setting? So I think it's important to evaluate. Um, so those patients, he, he definitely needs an MRI to determine the stroke burden, I, I think, or at least clinically. I don't, I don't uh, you know, clinically, um, I feel he needs it. Um, he needs to be monitored in a close setting um, because the, the dissection in the vertebral artery could throw further emboli and cause further um, increase in stroke burden. I've seen, you know, uh, it, I don't think it's a, it's a straightforward answer or one that could be tested on examination um, of the question of um, aspirin alone versus um, anticoagulation. And I know with extracranial dissection, stylistically, sometimes people could start anticoagulation or heparin drip while closely monitoring, but also aspirin um, alone has been done. So there isn't a lot of data to decide or tell us exactly what to do in the setting of a symptomatic cervical dissection. So there was a trial called the CADIS trial, which looked at antiplatelet therapy versus anticoagulation for cervical artery dissections. And it was a randomized trial. You know, the trial had a lot of issues. It was a very small trial. Um, they defined a symptomatic 
dissection as including people that just had headache without focal neurological deficits. There wasn't a standard antiplatelet regimen that people got versus a standard anticoagulant regimen. So people had different, were using Plavix, some people were on aspirin, and there was really uh, limited differences between the two groups. And so based on, you know, anecdotal information, we do make a decision on whether we should put somebody on systemic anticoagulation versus antiplatelet therapy alone. Sometimes what pushes some people towards systemic anticoagulation would be whether there's an actual thrombus within the blood vessel that you can appreciate, because sometimes that can mean that the, the blood vessel is at higher risk for causing further emboli whether there is intracranial extension of the dissection. Um, if there is intracranial dissection, that could mean that the patient is at higher risk for developing something called a pseudoaneurysm, which could lead to subarachnoid hemorrhage. And so in that situation, it may be higher risk to start that patient on anticoagulation. And if the patient actually has a stroke, depending on the size of the stroke, um, if the stroke is very large, it may be too risky to start the patient on systemic anticoagulation. And so all of those things kind of contribute to the decision of whether to, to put somebody on systemic anticoagulation or just leave them on antiplatelet therapy. Thank you. This is definitely a question that we always have. Thank you for going over that. So, you know, as a resident in our institution, in these settings, sometimes it's helpful and our attendings will ask for us to get an, uh, an MRA angiogram of the head and neck with fat sats, which could help us isolate what's in the lumen and what's in the wall, essentially, um, to answer the question of the thrombus that you were mentioning, Dr. Uh, Narula. Um, so case four is a seven-year-old with a past medical history of diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, who comes into the emergency room with 30 minutes of speech difficulty that resolved. Um, upon further history taking, um, you know, I realized that the patient had had some episodes with right arm numbness and weakness that he thought was related to a peripheral nerve since it was intermittent and would come and go. So what are you worried about in this patient? So this is a, an intermittent focal neurologic symptom um, that maps out to a vascular territory. Uh, so I'm thinking a transient ischemic attack. And in particular, um, I'm worried about something in the anterior circulation. What sort of imaging modality would you want to get in this patient? Since it seems like they're having recurrent episodes. Sure. So um, CT head, obviously, is, is the first thing we would get. Um, um, but a CTA of the head and neck would be necessary to evaluate for any carotid um, etiology causing the, the symptoms. So you're looking for um, evidence of carotid artery stenosis that could predispose the patient to recurrent events or even intracranial stenosis that could predispose the patient to recurrent episodes. Absolutely. Let's say that the patient doesn't have any evidence of carotid artery disease or intracranial stenosis, um, and you think that this is a transient ischemic attack or TIA, is there um, a scoring system that you could use to, to help you risk stratify the patient? Absolutely. 
Um, so ABCD to, uh, square score um, is um, what we always think about, and it stands for age, um, as the A, which is age of 60 or more, so that's one point. Blood pressure of 140 over 90 or greater. And then um, the C is the, the clinical symptom. Uh, so if it's a speech imper impairment without weakness, um, that's uh, one and, and two points for a focal weakness. The duration of the symptom, um, we have 10 to minutes to one hour and 60 minutes or more, and a diabetes. So essentially, this just gives us uh, a risk score for how likely are these patients to get a, a stroke within two days. Exactly. So it's basically a scoring system that estimates the risk of stroke after a suspected transient ischemic attack or TIA. And basically, the, the more points you obtain on the scoring system, the higher your risk is. And so if you have a high blood pressure, you're older, if you have focal symptoms um, that last for a long period of time and associated vascular risk factors like diabetes, then that puts you on the higher end of the scale. And we use this scoring system um, in our institution to determine whether somebody with a TIA needs to be admitted to the hospital to obtain their workup or if they could be discharged safely with an outpatient workup. Um, and here we typically admit anybody with a score of four or higher. Um, and sometimes we do um, discharge patients that have TIAs with a lower ABCD2 score. Um, but only if they don't have any high-risk features, even outside of the scoring system. You know, with, with people uh, with an ABCD2 score of four or more, um, I, you know, also becomes relevant to kind of see if we would load with Plavix and, and start them on dual antiplatelets therapy for 21 days per the chance and point trials, uh, which I, I'm not sure if you would like to elaborate further on, uh, Dr. Nerola. Sure. And so when we're thinking about um, people that have a high-risk transient ischemic attack, meaning that they have a high ABCD2 score or even small ischemic stroke on MRI, we want to think about the, the best preventative management to prevent another episode. And there's something um, called the POINT trial, which is the clopidogrel and aspirin in acute ischemic stroke and high-risk TIA trial, which is um, basically a secondary prevention trial looking at the use of aspirin and clopidogrel in the first 21 days following uh, acute ischemic stroke or high-risk TIA. And it showed that there was a benefit at preventing recurrent events within the first 90 days in patients who did get dual antiplatelet therapy. So definitely something to think about when you are evaluating these um, so that was a great review of a TIA symptoms. This patient happened to have a CTA uh, with no uh, vascular uh, uh, process that would keep, keep us concerned. However, uh, there is another case with a very similar presentation um, who is a 70-year-old with also vascular risk factors who comes into the emergency room with intermittent right vision loss um, for 20 minutes that has been happening with, with high recurrence in the past month. So you obtained a CT angiogram on that patient as well. And 
What did that show? So that patient had a right carotid stenosis of 80% narrowing. Hmm. So what do you think the etiology of the visual symptoms is in this case? So since it's uh, intermittent, um, it really is more consistent with amaurosis fugax. Um, and with a carotid stenosis, I think about emboli, so a large vessel disease um, with artery to artery thrombi uh, causing, impacting the ophthalmic uh, artery. Yeah, so you can think about a central retinal artery occlusion or branch retinal artery occlusion being caused by emboli from the carotid artery. And so for secondary prevention in this patient, what could you consider? For an 80% stenosis that's considered symptomatic, uh, per NACID, that actually requires a sur surgical intervention. You know, we can talk about carotid endarterectomy versus carotid um, um, angioplasty and stenting, but the NACID particularly looked at the carotid uh, endarterectomy, and there was a 9% um, rate of two-year ipsilateral stroke rate versus, I believe, somewhere around 25% for just medical management. So it all comes down to stroke etiology, like you said. So if you're worried that um, somebody has a symptomatic carotid artery stenosis, you would consider intervention. Um, the gold standard intervention would be something called a CEA or a carotid endarterectomy. That's the, the oldest kind of most studied intervention. However, you know, now endovascular therapy is also um, very prominent. And so carotid artery stenting is also um, a reasonable option for these patients. In terms of the degree of stenosis, if we think something, the first step would be to classify something as either symptomatic or asymptomatic. If you think um, a blood vessel, uh, particularly the internal carotid artery is the symptomatic vessel or the cause of the stroke, then you could consider intervention really based on the morphology of the plaque if you think it's high risk or based on the degree of stenosis. And so really anything greater than 50% would be reasonable to intervene upon or even lower if you think that the, the plaque in the artery is very high risk. You know, some of the older studies do classify things very strictly based on degree of stenosis, but, you know, we now look at everything kind of to, all together in the clinical picture to, to mitigate the risk of recurrent events in each individual patient. And now that people are getting, you know, procedural or very experienced at doing both endarterectomies and carotid artery stenting, the procedural risk of complications is um, quite low. In general, you know, the, the risk based on the NASA criteria um, of somebody having a recurrent event is slightly higher in men than in women. And um, for people with moderate to high degree of carotid artery stenosis, and the general teaching is that carotid endarterectomy carries um, a higher risk of cardiac events that are procedural related and that um, carotid artery stenting has a higher risk of stroke periprocedurally. And so, you know, based on the age and the gender of the patient, we also use those demographics to decide what procedure would be best in certain patients.
Um, that's a really good review. Thank you. So I think, you know, just some numbers that could be helpful on exam, uh, since like Dr. Nerola said, some of these order, older studies are still used for examination purposes, is when you're thinking 70 to 99% symptomatic carotid stenosis, there's no question they benefit from intervention. 50 to 69 of symptomatic stenosis, there's definitely a great role for intervention, but there's greater impact in men as well as people with previous vascular risk factors with TIA and retinal syndromes. Uh, less than 50%, typically no intervention, um, uh, but there's clinical finesse to the decision as well. And asymptomatic stenosis of higher than 60% is really a discussion, correct, Dr. Nerola? Yeah, so there's um, the current trial of PRESS2, which is enrolling patients right now, looking at that exact question of whether medical management is superior to intervention for asymptomatic carotid artery stenosis. But based on the older um, data, it would be reasonable to intervene in asymptomatic disease in people that have very high-grade carotid stenosis of greater than 90%. Uh, and generally, when we think of carotid endarterectomy, it, it just the, the, the high risk of MI is a concern. So people with higher surgical risk, we need to be evaluating for maybe there's an alternative other than carotid endarterectomy for them. Other risk factors that we considered for this patient uh, is LDL. Um, and there are several studies that I've showed that high intensity statin for people with a high LDL is an important factor. 70 and 100 are numbers that I always remember. Or do you have any comments about that, Dr. Nerola? You know, everything um, now should be tailored to the individual patient. In general, after a stroke for secondary stroke prevention, we want the LDL to be um, low. So we usually target an LDL of less than 70. But again, um, you know, everything should be individualized to the specific patient. And then as far as, so, so this patient, his MRI actually winded up showing uh, strokes within the territory of the diseased carotid. When it comes to the timeline for intervening on the carotid, could you... Um, provide your sure. So, um, you know, we think that the highest risk of recurrent events um, likely occurs in the first few days after a stroke um, and within the first two weeks. And so if this burden of stroke is relatively small, then we would um, recommend carotid artery revascularization typically within the first two weeks um, or as early as possible. But the we kind of risk stratify the patient based on the size of the infarct that they already have and their risk of recurrent events. In general, we try to do it as early as possible if safe, but in people that have larger areas of ischemia, there is um, a risk of intracranial hemorrhage and reperfusion injury. So we have to balance the risk um, of recurrent events with that risk of reperfusion injury. And um, we sometimes wait four weeks um, or even up to two months. We tend not to wait too much longer than that because as you get up to the six month mark, the risk of recurrent events actually reduces enough that medical management is actually equivalent to revascularization. So the real benefit of revascularization of the carotid artery is maximal within the first six months following stroke. So case six is a 70-year-old female with vascular risk factors who comes in with multiple 
hemispheric strokes, frequent presentations to the emergency room and frequent stroke um, service admissions. Her CTA shows a right M1 stenosis. So yeah, so in this patient, if the CT angiogram shows recurrent events in the right hemisphere, right hemisphere, and there's um, a high-grade stenosis of the right middle cerebral artery, you would be worried that the patient was having events related to that area stenosis, either related to hypoperfusion or symptomatic intracranial artery-to-artery embolization. And so there was a trial called the SAMPRIS trial, which looked at best medical management for the treatment of intracranial atherosclerotic disease versus intracranial stenting. Um, And basically the stenting arm did much worse than the patients who got best medical management, which would be a high dose statin medication, aggressive blood pressure control, and then they used um, dual antiplatelet therapy with aspirin and clopidogrel or Plavix um, for a three-month course. And those patients tended to do much better than the patients um, who received intracranial stenting. The caveat to this study is that it's also fairly old um, and that procedurally people, you know, now are much better at placing intracranial stents. Typically, intracranial stenting is reserved for people that have very aggressive intracranial stenosis with multiple recurrent events who have failed best medical management. But we typically recommend best medical management um, for patients that have intracranial stenosis that we think is related to atherosclerotic disease. Um, There was another trial called the WASID trial, which looked at systemic anticoagulation with Coumadin versus antiplatelet therapy. And in general, the patients that were on anticoagulation had um, higher risks of bleeding. Uh, And so we tend not to do that unless obviously they fail the antiplatelet regimen that we put them on and have recurrent events despite that. So... Case 7 is a 40-year-old obese woman with vascular risk factors. She comes in with 3.5 hours of right-sided weakness um, that involves arm and leg. It started on suddenly. Um, She came in to the emergency room. What sort of etiologies would you be worried about in her case? Uh, so I think I think some, something that involves um, the, the the face, arm, and leg um, is sort of deep brain structures. So a lacunar stroke can certainly cause that, uh, like a pure motor uh, lacunar stroke. Uh, so a small vessel etiology is likely. So I'm not like super crazy about thrombectomy for her, for example, given the absence of cortical signs. Yeah, so perfect. So you would start with probably a CT head and a CT angiogram. Does she seem like she may be a candidate for IV thrombolytics if you're worried that this could be an acute ischemic stroke? Absolutely. Uh, Yes, so she was a candidate. She had no contraindications to TPA, which we can review. Um, And she was given IV um, TPA. So the, the first thing you would want to make sure is that she doesn't have any sort of trauma to the head or neck or she didn't have any evidence of intracranial hemorrhage. So the eligibility criteria for TPA would be age greater than 18, um, a clinical diagnosis of ischemic stroke that you believe are causing the deficits that you see in your patient, and then the time of onset of the symptoms within four and a half hours 
um, you know, there's an additional warning between the three and four and a half hour window, which we can talk about. And then there are absolute contraindications to TPA, and then there are relative contraindications to TPA. So some of the absolute contraindications to TPA would be intracranial hemorrhage, neurosurgery, head trauma, or um, large ischemic stroke within the, the last three months. Smaller ischemic strokes within the last three months could be considered a relative contraindication now. Uncontrolled hypertension, so a blood pressure systolic greater than 185 or diastolic greater than 110. A history of intracranial hemorrhage that's not traumatic, so intraparenchymal hemorrhage that's not related to trauma. Um, any sort of known intracranial vascular malformation, um, large intracranial neoplasm or large aneurysm, um, suspected or confirmed bacterial endocarditis, a known bleeding diathesis, so a platelet count of less than 100,000. Um, if the patient received heparin, um, therapeutic heparin within the last 48 hours and has an elevated PTT that's over the normal limit for the lab that you're in, current use of oral anticoagulants. So if you're using warfarin and your INR is greater than 1.7, that's an absolute contraindication, or current use of one of the direct um, oral anticoagulants within the last 48 hours. Those are all absolute contraindications. I mean, some of the, the relative contraindications would be an abnormal blood glucose, um, minor or rapidly improving stroke symptoms, major surgery or serious um, head, non-serious head trauma within the last 21 days, seizure at stroke onset, um, recent lumbar puncture, and pregnancy. Those are all relative contraindications. So based on clinical judgment, you can include those patients for um, IV thrombolytics. Um, and then a little bit, we talked about the additional warning after the three-hour period. And we usually um, have an additional warning for people that are over the age of 80, since they tend to be more likely to have spontaneous intracranial bleeding related to IVTPA, um, a history of prior stroke and diabetes, um, any active anticoagulant use, even if they're using, let's say, warfarin and their INR is less than 1.7, a very large stroke scale, so um, stroke scale greater than 25, and then a CT with an infarct, which already shows uh, greater than one-third of the MCA territory. This has been a great review. Do you have any additional pearls for our listeners, Dr. Nerla? No, I think, um, you know, the, the main thing I can say is to just look at each patient as an individual and um, all of the trials kind of serve as guidelines, but obviously there's always exceptions, um, but it's very important, especially when using IV thrombolytics to look at all of the, the contraindications and relative contraindications um, and see how best to treat your patient. Thank you for sharing your time with us today and stay tuned everyone for more stroke episodes. Uh, I hope to continue recording these uh, podcasts with you.